not only did the Buddha explain to us the nature of suffering and what gives rise to that dissatisfaction that we feel in our lives, but he gave us a path, a very clear path, a very clear map to follow. And over 2,500 years, people have been following this path, so it's very well trodden. And we, each one of us, get to walk that path if we so choose. And it's good to have a path, (laughs) because otherwise we might feel a little bit lost. I mean, more lost than we actually do a lot of the time. But at least we have a path. If we're following the Buddhist path, at least we have a path to return to. Gil Fronsdale, one of my colleagues, was teaching with uh, this year, talked about it like this. He said, if you're lost in a jungle, you need to find your way out. You might stumble out. But unless you have a path, you won't have learned the way out if you get lost again. And you also won't be able to help others find their way out. And I really like that. I really like reflecting on that. Because, yeah, we might stumble out, you know, and have some sense of relief or freedom for a while. But then we kind of, (laughs) we start all over again. (laughs) And if we actually know how to get back on the path, then we have more possibility of finding that sense of freedom again. And this path is really what points us in the right direction. And as I said before, I was quoting Ryokan, this wonderful uh, teacher and poet, who said, if you point your cart north, When you want to go south, how are you ever going to arrive? So we are trying to find the right direction. And I think this week, we certainly have been orienting again and again and again towards that right direction, trying to keep turning back, turning back and pointing ourselves in a way that might potentially lead us to greater and greater degrees of freedom. Stephen Batchelor, another one of my colleagues, says, the person who enters such a path is one who aspires to a life no longer conditioned and dictated by the narrow demands of craving. And that really defines, that really points to more specifically what we're actually doing on this path. I'll read it again. He says, The person who enters such a path is one who aspires to a life no longer conditioned and dictated by the narrow demands of craving. And if you remember, craving is actually the cause of our suffering. It's the second noble truth. It's what gives rise when there's when there's an obscuration to our seeing, when we're not able to see very clearly, we get caught in this craving and then clinging and attachment. So these Four Noble Truths and this Eightfold Path really are the whole heart of the teachings. It's like if you want to focus on what these teachings are about, that's where we go. The Four Noble Truths and then the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path, right? And it focuses us, it directs us to look at this clinging, which is called tanha in Pali. This, uh, sorry, the, the craving is tanha, and the clinging, that's how it goes. First there's the, the craving, which is kind of the wanting or the leaning into, and then there's the clinging, which is the attachment. And so the tanha in Pali is that leaning into in the, in the craving or wanting for And then the upadana is the k, when you get your claws in it. (laughs) You've got that thing that you've wanted, and you're holding on to it. 
That's the, 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 the clinging uh, is the traditional word. That's the way it's translated or the, that uh, gripping, that attaching, that holding, fixating, which is, you know, that contracted, unfree state that we find ourselves in. And it's this movement, that movement that we've been exploring and, and looking at in our practice, in our mind, in our body, which is really the, what, what, we have to, what we need to continue to pay attention to in our practice as we uh, go out tomorrow into our ordinary life and our daily life. It's that movement when we feel that tension, when we feel that contraction coming back in or the way the mind just becomes kind of dull or uh, glazed over. We lose that sense of clear seeing. We lose that sense of our mindfulness. And it's this leaning, that contraction, that, that uh, craving and that clinging, which is a leaning into, which essentially is saying, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of this? What can I get out of this? And the story becomes about me and my life, and it becomes very, we become very self-centered, very narrow-minded, and in that view, it's often difficult to really see others or be with others in a very clear way. And this is how this sense of me gets constructed, the sense of me, the sense of this uh, 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 constricted or crystallized sense of me that I was speaking about this morning, it gets constructed out of that, that movement itself, that clinging on, that, that, that attaching on to those uh, objects of our desire, those wantings of our desires. And then we have this sense of, of, of a me. In, in Buddhism, this is called uh, the identity view, the sense of identity who I take myself to be that's constructed around these um, <coughs> thoughts and uh, these ideas about, uh, about this, this small kind of narrow, isolated, separated sense of me. It's called Sakya Ditti, and we become somebody. And we become somebody who is isolated and separate. There's this uh, really wonderful um, joke that I like to read in my Dharma talk sometimes. It really shows, brings this home. Uh, One day a rabbi, in a frenzy of religious passion, rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees, and started beating his breasts, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The cantor of the synagogue, impressed by this example of spiritual humility, joined the rabbi on his knees, saying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. The shamus, or the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging to the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, Look who thinks he's nobody. And I, <laughs> it's such a good example, you know, of that, you know, the identity that can even form around a sense of spiritual humility. <laughs> I'm so humble, you know, I'm, I'm so spiritual, or, you know, I'm, I'm this or that, you know, and it's just a, when we're not really... Uh, very attentive or aware, we don't even know how we're just creating another identity around that. You can create an identity around anything. And that identity will either be one that's inflated or one that's deflated. You know, those are the two positions that the ego self, we call this ego mind, this crystallized kind of sense of me, takes. You can't, even if you, you think you're nobody and you take a position around that, that's a, it's an elevated, <laughs> kind of an elevated position. Again, it's, it's, it's really quite interesting when we really start to look at this. In Buddhism, 
when, when we're talking about the identity view or who we take ourselves to be, it's constructed around what's called these five aggregates, which are what become the condition for this clinging. It really breaks down what, we, how, what we're actually identifying with. And one of them is the physical element, which is our body. We take this body to be me, this body to be mine, this body is who I am. And it's such a strong identification that happens for us. And there's so much pain, there's so much suffering that comes about when that clinging is happening. And I take, this is me. I had a recent call from a a friend this week who's uh, in her late 50s. And some of the women in here may be aware how Sometimes difficult it is when the body starts to age <laughs> and there's a certain change that happens. I don't know about the men because I'm, I'm not a man, but I have no idea what men <laughs> experience in the aging process, but I do know what women experience. And this uh, woman, it was just a, a message, and she was saying, ah, she said, it was, it's been a really bad week in Los Angeles. And she said, it was really hot, and the sun was shining, and something just happened to my skin. She said, and I looked in the mirror, and I just couldn't believe how much I had aged. (laughs) And she said, and I don't know what to do. I didn't know whether to get fillers. I didn't know whether to get (laughs) treatments. I didn't know whether to get Botox. (laughs) I just don't know what to do. And there was this really distressed kind of call. (laughs) <laughs> and you know and and I you know just hearing it my heart you know my heart just just goes goes out in the and the thought that I had you know because 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 she was saying what should I do what should I do and the thought that I had was just like oh I wish you could put on my glasses and see you from my lenses see you from my eyes this woman is so beautiful. She is just so exquisitely beautiful. And I just said, oh, you know, if you could only see through my eyes. But yet how, how can we do that for somebody? You can't, you can't make them have different eyes. And yet the suffering, the pain that goes in when we're looking through that lens, that lens of identification, that lens of clinging, and then all of the action that wants to follow and how that gives shape to our reality. You know, in this case, who knows what action that's going to produce for that person, you know, where, you know, where she's going to wind up and, you know, what she's going to look like if she actually starts doing some of those treatments. That would be terrible. So, you know, so it's just that, just how it just, we, be, we start to become that identification. We become that clinging. And all that starts to build up in the mind and the, the, the body around that. So our strong identification with our body, it's one of the aggregates. The other four aggregates, these conditions, are mental. So one is the feeling, the factor of the feeling tone, just the Vedna I was speaking about, just that, those, that moment of, of pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. That's actually one important aspect of our experience. Another one is perception. It's just how we form objects, how we see objects from the space and from uh, form and shape. And we, things come into view, and from memory we can name and say, oh, um, that's a, this is a, a cushion, and this is a glass, and this is a piece of paper. And objects actually start taking form through the mind. And, that, and then we say, that's me. That's my perception. That's, that's my glass. You know, that's my, these are my glasses. You know, these, these things start coming into form. Or the, 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 other, the next one is consciousness. This is me. This is mine. This is who I am. Even consciousness. 
So these four mental formations and the body is who is in Buddhism is is what gives form to this uh, sense of me, mind and body, nama rupa, mind and body. And when we cling to any of this, this is when we misperceive, we get confused about the way things are. We see things more, we see ourselves more as a solid or separate entity. We don't see these, these conditions as coming and going and shifting and changing, the conditions of mind, the conditions of body that are not so solid as we've seen over the week here. The sensations and the feelings and the perceptions, the images and the mental activity just coming and going and coming and going. And when I get fixated on these, these conditions as something solid and fixed and unmoving, then I miss the larger view. I miss the sense of a flow. I miss that openness or the wholeness or the, the larger connection to all things. I get, I get fixated in a particular view of who I'm taking myself to be, and there's so much more that's possible for us as we let go and as we open to that. The Buddha says, and this is a refrain in one of his discourses, he says, this is not me, this I am not, this is not myself. And he takes that for each one, the body, this is not me, this is, this is not myself, this I am not. And when he says that, he's talking about this fixation that we have around, like, like this woman I was speaking about, and all, all the, the pain that arises around that. So this is what we want to really look into, is how we get fixated by our thoughts and our feelings. We can see how we can get fixated by our memories and our ideas about the past. All of those conditions and those impressions that happened to us when we were young and when we were developing, and how that could get so easily implanted in our mind, and then we believe that's who I am. And we can so easily collapse and regress and hold on to that, and and that can give shape to our whole personality, our whole sense of our character. Like, I'm, um, um, I'm just so wounded, or I've had such a terrible childhood, or I was so poor, or all of these different kinds of conditions that we can so easily identify with, and, and, they, ta- and they, they form our sense of who we are. And then we move in the world, we start to navigate in the world as if that's still who we are. And again, we miss that larger view. We miss all that, all that else that is here right now for us. And this, these, these kind of views become very narrow. They keep us very small. They keep us very limited. And it's almost like we have blinders on and we can't see very clearly. We only see in a very narrow and small way. And it's really so unfortunate, it's so painful, because it's not what's true, it's not what's real. There's so much more. It's almost like water turned into ice. It's the same essence, right? Water and ice, there's no difference. But water is flowing and uh, liquid and fluid, and, and then when there's a fixation, it becomes ice. Ice is a good metaphor because it's also cold (laughs) and it has a particular shape. My Tibetan teacher, Sokni Rinpoche, says that fixating mind is like ice shaped in different forms. It's just that these separate solid entities become fixed out there or I'm here and we, we miss that, that kind of sense of a larger connection, which I'm sure you've started to sense into and feel over this week. When the mind starts to relax, 
when those conceptual views and stories start to relax and something opens up. People have talked about that in the interviews where some people have said, this is incredible. I haven't had this kind of feeling before where I feel so kind of open and connected to in ways that I haven't before. The, the sense of my boundaries of where I've known myself and where my body is, it's just opened up and there's a, a kind of expansion and uh, so it's so fascinating and, and interesting just how that begins to happen. And this view, this kind of narrow view or this fixed view starts to not become so real anymore, so true anymore. But yet when we're fixating in this way, it's almost like that ego mind, which is really based in so much fear, the fear of letting go, the fear of opening up, it almost, the, it's like the identity wraps itself around some kind of idea in order to locate itself and have a ground to stand on. It wants, it's almost like we need to know this kind of security or this familiarity or this like where we are and what's happening and what's going on and you know, and what's going to happen tomorrow and what happened yesterday. And, and it's sort of like getting everything all kind of all your ducks in a row, you know. And then you sort of know where you are and how things are going to go. And, you know, you have your next month planned out or, you know, you have your week planned out. You have your routines. And, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's just as, are we getting kind of caught in it? Are we getting habituated by it? Are we getting kind of lost in that? Is there, is there maybe more for us to discover, to see? Because it seems that the mind wants to make things concrete. It's almost like that's the, the function of the mind in some way, is to, to, to get everything all figured out and analyzed and... Uh, objectified and um, confirmed and <laughs> affirmed and you know you sort of know your whole reality and you know who you are it's almost like it's part of the function of the judge as well that judging mind the one that directs us and criticizes us and you know sort of tells us what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be doing and whether we're doing it right or whether we're not doing it right and it's like like that particular uh, voice can get crystallized in such a way that it actually takes control and it's it's dictating our whole reality for us when we're not really seeing that it's just more thought, kind of patterns of thought that are just, actually when you turn towards them, there may not be a lot there. It might be quite empty and spacious when we really take a look. And yet there's a way through the conditioning, the strong conditioning that these patterns start to take on a formation, a form of a, of a body or a mind or an other or objects in in, 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 in the room or in the world, and we all think it's so believable. We don't bring a lot of questioning to this, a lot of doubt to this. The Buddha said that one of the unwise views is to take what's, to, to seek what's permanent in that which is impermanent. To think that something is permanent when it's actually impermanent. And this is really the habitual view, the habitual way we are. To seek, even to seek the permanent in that which is impermanent. And there's some way that we feel the security, we feel the comfort you know, when I was thinking about this unwise view of seeking or taking the permanent and the impermanent, I was reminded of um, I, I, my friends in New Zealand who live in Christchurch. I go to New Zealand quite a lot to teach every year. And on September 7th, it was about two months ago, actually, 
there was a major earthquake in Christchurch. It was a 7.1, and it really rattled the city. Um, just to say, though, that you know, there's such a they're so savvy there around the um, seismic uh, infrastructures that it didn't even hardly hurt the buildings at all. At a 7.1, I mean, it's so well constructed there that hardly anything really was damaged. I mean, just sort of some sewers and, you know, things, chimneys and things like that. But it's phenomenal to think that actually was the case. But what I, but my point is that, um, you know, we always feel the earth. That's permanent, right? (laughs) We've got, at least we've got the ground under our feet. And that's, you know, we can always rely on that. Well, um, they, I've been in touch with my friends because I've been very concerned about them. And since September 7th, and it's been about 60 days, they've had 2,000 aftershocks. 2,000 aftershocks in 60 days. <laughs> so <laughs> you can imagine, or can, you ima- can we imagine what it would be like to live every day. And it's still rocking. It's still rocking. And this was the email I got last week where um, she said, uh, we had one last, the one last Tuesday had peak ground acceleration higher than the original earthquake, which meant stuff did fall over. in some areas worse than the original. 60 days after the original earthquake. What does that point to around this permanence in the (laughs) impermanent? You know? So right when we're feeling like we're getting really secure, (laughs) really stabilized, you know, in this this world that seems like everything's under control. You know, we've got all our ducks in a row. <laughs> then that, that rolling and that rumbling, the very, very place that we feel is most secure. So we're really looking at this, and this is one of the things this week, you know, just as we start to look into this this insight into the impermanent nature, which is one of the key insights in our letting go, when we start to realize that that which we are holding on to, that which we are attaching on to, is going to change. Whether it's this body, whether it's this mind, whether it's the earth, whether it's your life, other people's lives, whatever it is, there is really nothing that we can hold on to. And of course, when we consider that, we can feel very insecure. And we don't want to. All of this conditioning is to overcome that feeling of insecurity. We don't want to feel that. And so we can construct this whole sense of self, this sense of me, the sense of I, that we take to be very solid to give us a sense that there is something secure here. And and then it gives rise to a great deal of suffering because we hold on and we don't want it to change. We don't want anything to change. And in that grasping, in that clinging, we are holding on for dear life. And I'm also yet reminded, though, this week when people say, oh, you know, I was sitting and things were really rocking and things were really moving and and it was a little bit scary, but I was able to really sit there. And it just started moving and things were opening up and moving and it really felt good really felt wonderful just to feel that stability in my, my being and my body that could just rest there and not be rocked around by my mind and my body. And the wonderful sense of power, the wonderful sense of strength 
that came from that stability within my awareness, within my consciousness, that was not dependent on the conditions of my mind. It was not dependent on the conditions of my body. And yet I felt so stable. I felt so grounded. I felt so here. And what joy, what joy, what delight in that feeling. And as I say this, I know the number of you have had this kind of experience where you can know, where you really feel that kind of ground in your own being, where you don't need the ground to be solid underneath you. You don't need your body to be in a particular kind of formation or your mind, but you can sit like a mountain. You can sit with that solidity even so because you've gone beyond the ordinary conditions of mind and body. You've touched into the power of awareness of consciousness itself, which holds all the qualities that we are seeking and looking for. So we're not trying to get rid of our personalities. And I think this is really, this is the point I really want to make because in Buddhism, it's something that can be quite confusing because it can seem like, you know, we're trying to break down and see through and, you know, give up and let go and and annihilate and, you know, dissolve and, you know, all these kinds of words. And we might think that it actually means that we're trying to do that to our personality, to who we take ourselves to be in kind of a more essential way, you know, in more of a, a way that we express ourselves just naturally in the world. We're not trying to erase our personalities. And we know that all beings who seem quite evolved or quite awake have have big personalities, you know, or they have quirky personalities, or, you know, that all beings have personalities. You can't take them away. You know, even the Buddha had a particular personality that comes through in the texts and in the stories, you know, that he, he showed up in a particular way and kind of ruthless and clear and direct and compassionate and uh, was able to, to teach the Dhamma in a way that other people weren't able to, to teach. And then his um, disciple Ananda, who was also very awake, had an incredible memory, could remember all of the teachings of the Buddha and was able to transmit those teachings after the Buddha died um, and, and hold the memory of the teachings. Really important aspect of his personality, of his character. Each one you could describe and, and see how, how, how those wonderful personalities come through. So we're not trying to get rid of our personality. We're only trying to relax the tendencies to fixate the tendencies to cling, the tendency to identify and keep ourselves kind of in this small, kind of narrow view of who we think we are, which then obscures our, our, our capacity to know ourselves in our true way, in our, in our full wholeness, because we're only seeing a tiny little part depending on a story that we're carrying or a memory that we're carrying about our past or our, our actions or our speech or whatever it is that goes into that definition of who we take ourselves to be. So this relaxing, relaxing, we put so much emphasis on relaxing when we're here, because we're relaxing that constriction, relaxing that the way the mind gets so tight and contracted and wants to go into the past and wants to go into the future and gets very tight around those ideations and those beliefs and those expectations and those assumptions. Unless we can actually see that happening, it all becomes very believable. And it's what gives shape 
to our reality. I think my, I want to tell you a story about one of my, um, one of the moments where I had a tr- really big insight into this, uh, how this whole becoming, how how that that craving and then the clinging gives rise to the becoming. And on the twelve links of the dependent origination, those three links are they follow each other. That first the the, the after the feeling and then the clinging and then the uh, sorry the craving and then the clinging and then the becoming where something actually seems real and comes into existence. I was, um, some years ago, um, I had the opportunity to go to Nepal and take teachings from uh, a very uh, beautiful lama named Tuko Ugin Rinpoche, uh, who's now passed away. And he was considered really one of the uh, most uh, awake teachers uh, in the Tibetan tradition at the time. And I was able to go with this small group of my friends and colleagues and have four or five days of teachings with this small group from this master. And so it was really, you know, one of those very special um, experiences to be able to go and, and, and sit with him while he was giving teachings. He gave them in Tibetan, and then there was a translator. Um, and it happened over uh, three or four days. And there was just a moment. Um, he's giving these kinds of teachings, right? This, these are the teachings that you receive from um, uh, uh, a lama about, you know, how to bring an end to suffering. So he was talking about um, this craving, and he he held up a cup. Actually, I'll just hold this up. But it was a beautiful. He, you know, when you're when you're with lamas, they have all these very beautiful ornaments and crystal pitchers and glasses and crystal llama, uh, uh, malas and little uh, dorges and bells and all these, you know, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful ornaments are all around them and they're very, very well taken care of. And so on his, on his uh, podium where he was teaching from, he had this exquisitely beautiful china cup, teacup. So saucer and a cup. And, and so he's talking about uh, this uh, tendency towards this craving. And he holds up his teacup. And it, it's just like, you know, English bone china, you know, just like the most expensive and beautiful china. He's just holding it up, and he's speaking in Tibetan. So I didn't know what he was saying yet. So, so he's holding it up, and, and I could just, as I was sitting there, I was just going... I could just like, I could just, I'm sitting, I'm sitting quite close, you know, I'm sitting, he's like right over there where you are, you know, and I, and I'm just, and I'm just going, wow, you know, and just like looking at it and the colors and the shape, like this exquisite shape and the, you know, and he's just like holding me, speaking Tibetan, and I'm just fascinated by this teacup, and then the, and then the thought arose, I want a teacup like that. (laughs) I don't have a teacup yet. I want to go get myself a teacup like that. And and then my mind just went into all this, what's called papancho or proliferation, you know, where I just went in this whole thing while he's speaking in Tibetan, right, you know, waiting for the translator. You know, just imagining where could I go to get my teacup, and you know how nice it'll be to have that teacup. And, and I was, and, and then, and then, you know, there was some translation about the, you know, the the craving and the clinging, and and I'm not even sure, you know, what the teaching was, but I was so, I could just see it all right there. I saw my whole, I because I had been sitting quite quietly and you know really taking in the teachings and really enjoying. And then I could just feel the whole rising up. <laughs> I became someone who loved China and teacups and wanted to have lots of them in my house. And, you know, and, and I was a whole different person than the one who had just previously 
been sitting there, you know, very meditatively, <laughs> you know, just really enjoying sitting with this group of people. And I was so amused. I could not have seen it more clearly. What that, what that, that experience of the of tanha craving. It was just like the whole, a whole movement of it into craving. And I, I, I'm still asking myself the question whether I actually went into attachment or not. I'm, it's not really clear whether I got fully attached because. Because I think that attachment has something to do with, you know, a little bit more following through a little bit more where where then I would find myself booking my ticket to London to find a tea shop, you know, where I could actually start looking at teacups and make sure that I could get the right one that would really fit my personality and package it in a way that I could ship it back home and... You know, and then have it in my kitchen ready for when I had people over for tea that I could actually use my tea cup. You know, it's like that's, I think, where it goes, right? That's where we go. We have a whole destination. And it's not that we just go there in our mind. We actually go there physically. We go there bodily, we find ourselves in destinations and we wonder how we got there. How did I arrive here? How did I get here? And then it's almost like sometimes, you know, whether it's a, a job or a relationship or, you know, um, way we're dressed, you know, clothes or, you know, whatever it is that we enter into, sometimes we can just wake up in a moment and say, what am I doing here? what am I doing here? This just doesn't work for me. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> Maybe some of you have done that in a relationship. I know I have. <laughs> you know, where it all seemed pretty glorious for a while, and then there's just this moment where it's almost like you take the veil off and you just see really clearly what's going on. And I think that's what really starts to happen with our own identity, where we start to shed these layers of who we take ourselves to be. And I think when we come on the spiritual path, we come, we can kind of show up, we walk in, you know, kind of very kind of bravado, and you got this going on and that going on, and, you know, I'm this and I'm that, and, you know, or we can see ourselves wanting to show up like that. And then yet we, there's the awareness and the understanding of, I don't need to do that. I don't need, I can just be honest. I can just be truthful. Say, this is where I am. This is what's going on. And I don't need to put all that on. I don't need to carry that with me. It just becomes pretty clear sometimes, this whole kind of, whatever we want to call it, kind of a mask or our defenses or a shell or the armoring or whatever it is that's really keeping us from fully connecting in a way that we know is possible for us. Not only connecting with ourselves, but connecting with others and connecting with nature, connecting with the world in a whole different way. And sometimes we can actually feel that armoring drop off. It, it, I've had the experience where I actually almost hear the metal <laughs> clinking on the floor. It's like these kind of <laughs> bits of the armor, you know, just like <laughs> dropping off. And, you know, just that sense of being able to breathe again. And, you know, like I have fresh skin again or new skin. You're shedding those layers of the past shedding the layers of the old, just like the snake that sheds the skin. And then this new, fresh, alive, tender being comes forth. So we're trying to bring forth something that is more real, something more authentic, something more true, not trying to get rid of ourselves, 
We're not trying to negate ourselves or annihilate ourselves. But just kind of start to, to let go of all of that conditioning, kind of the conditioning of the past, which can feel so kind of um, hindering or obscuring or um, sometimes even a little metallic or heavy or in the way. I'll just have it to start to to drop away and, and to see what's actually there, what's left, and then what comes through. Allowing these things to rise and pass, making room, space for these changing conditions of our mind, of our body, in this spacious awareness, and see what happens as we feel more of the flow and the, the fluidity, the, the um, kind of the watery quality of our, of our beingness and of this, this livingness. This is what really brings about the transformation, this transformation that we are wanting and, and longing for and hoping for. This French uh, psychoanalyst, uh, Herbert Benoît, has a, a lovely way of, of talking about this transformation. He calls it a transmutation, kind of this transmutation of energy, taking energy that uh, is bound up in something that appears solid, whether it's our, mo- our, our emotions or our mind or our memories or ideas or the world, whatever it is, and we begin to transmute that into its more essential quality. And he says he, he compares this transmutation of emotional energy to the metamorphosis of coal into diamonds. And he says, where the aim is not the destruction of the ego, but its transformation, conscious acceptance results in the coal becoming denser and so blacker and more opaque, then being instantaneously transformed into a diamond that is perfectly transparent. And I love that kind of sense of where, you know, we begin with the coal, this coal that is kind of dark and not so attractive and, you know, and, and yet it has all the energy to produce a diamond. And what happens in the transmutation is that it starts to become denser and blacker and more opaque through that, uh, through the energy of focused attention, of this kind of laser-like attention to what's really true, what's really real, what's really authentic, and a kind of a, that laser-like quality of the mind starts creating this more denser, opaque, energetic uh, uh, sense of things, and then being instantaneously transformed into a diamond that is perfectly transparent. And that transparency, there's nothing obscured, nothing hindered, nothing in the way, just radiant, brilliant, shining. Our essence, the essence of our being, or we might say pure consciousness, pure consciousness, pure awareness, radiating brilliantly, Boundless, infinite, expansive. That essence that we are. And we can know this directly. And in our human expression, what happens is all those ways that the fixations of our mind and our emotions that were painful start to get transformed into something beautiful. Our resentments transform into forgiveness. Our hatred transforms into friendliness and love. Our greed transforms into renunciation and generosity and letting go. Our fear transforms into respect 
and care. And our confusion transforms into wisdom. So you keep getting this transformation because that essence never leaves us. We are that essence. But that essence, that energy of our essence just gets bound up in this confusion, in this fixation, in these wrong views. Seeing things unclearly. And as we keep clarifying and clarifying through our awareness, through our mindfulness, through our interest, our curiosity, our attention, and through that laser-like awareness, things start to open up. That which was bound up in a suffering way gets released. That which was bound up in pain gets released. And then we feel what's there. That energy that is is our goodness, is our beauty, is our joy, is all of it. The radiance. It's all there. That coal that transmutes into a perfectly transparent diamond. That we are. That we are at our essence. And that's why it is so painful that we don't recognize it. That the human predicament, that we are all these essentially, inherently diamond-like essence, and we don't know it. We don't know it. It is such painful predicament of this human condition. And yet, it is possible for us, through our practice, through our commitment, through our willingness, through our courage, through our love, to begin to open up to that truth, to that awareness, to that understanding of what is. So let's just sit for a moment together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.